This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really happy for you to open those up with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we are going to be today. If you did not bring your own Bible, then there should be a hardback black one like this and a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 16, you're looking for page 870, 870. As we get started, I just want to make a quick mention. We have a few more children in the room than we normally do. Uh, I just want to assure you, if you're a parent or grandparent or friend of a child that's sitting nearby, uh, it not only doesn't bother me that you have children in the auditorium this morning, but I'm so happy that you do. Uh, One of the main ways that both of my two sons have come to understand what it looks like for a Christian to gather on the Lord's Day is by watching mom and dad and other Christians do that regularly. Uh, So my six-year-old, along with all the other children in the room, will contribute their own noises and distractions during today's service. I would just encourage you to do the best you can to pay attention, but I trust that the Lord's Word is fully capable of doing the work in our hearts, even with little ones in the room, and that the pros far outweigh the cons. So thanks for bringing your kids here today. I'm so glad that you did, and I pray that the Lord would use a portion of what they see and hear today to draw their little hearts to himself. I want to ask you some questions, as is my normal uh, way of opening up the sermon time. The first question I'd like to ask you is, do you think that God ever prevents the gospel from being preached to lost sinners? Can you think of a time where God ever prevented the gospel from being preached to lost sinners? Or what about when the gospel is preached? Why do some sinners respond with repentance and faith while others respond with indifference? They don't care. Or hostility. They don't like it. And what are some of the practical ways that you and I can be active evangelists? Even if we're not in some sort of professional Christian status. How can we with our everyday lives live as active evangelists? Well, I think that all of these questions are addressed and much more in our passage here today, but I want to give a little bit of background before we dive in. Chapter 15 of the book of Acts, where we've been previously, is sort of a dividing line in the whole book of Acts in at least a couple of ways. Most of Acts 15 describes the watershed moment when the early Christian church dealt definitively with the question of Gentile converts. Do they have to follow the law of Moses in order to be true followers of Jesus? No, they answered to that question. Salvation is through, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts fifteen eleven, and available to all who simply and truly believe the gospel, Acts fifteen nine. But the last six verses of Acts 15 describe the parting of ways between Paul and Barnabas. The addition of Silas to Paul's missionary team and also the beginning of Paul's second tour of missionary duty. In this way, as I said, Acts 15 sort of serves as kind of a hinge, a dividing line. 
This beginning of the missionary journey of Paul, his second one, it included, as you might recall, us talking about not too long ago, Paul and Barnabas wanting to revisit the brothers in every city where they had proclaimed the gospel to see how they are. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, Luke turns his attention for the remainder of the book of Acts on the apostle Paul. This is the main focus throughout the rest of the book. Now, Luke's overarching focus is on the spread of the gospel and Christ's kingdom in the world. First in Jerusalem, remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in Jerusalem and all Judea, then in Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And every spirit-empowered Christian was to be a part of this missionary effort from the beginning, teaching people the gospel, making disciples, forming local churches, and this remains true even today. We all have inherited a history and a heritage from those Christians who have gone before us. And we must take our place as Christian witnesses in this fallen world. But the apostles played a key and a unique role in laying the foundation of the church, which is what Luke is describing for us here. This organic yet organized, this regularly gathered yet repeatedly scattered new covenant people or kingdom or household or temple of God. And Paul was singled out by Jesus Christ as a particular apostle who would carry his name. This is in Acts chapter 9 where Paul's commissioning particularly happens. And Jesus said that, Christ, that Paul would carry his name as a missionary extraordinaire to all kinds of people. And also that Paul would suffer greatly as he did it. The rest of Acts then from Acts chapter 15, 16 and on is the remaining story of how that divine commission played out. Paul uniquely as uh, an apostle, a unique apostle, who plays this role in the spread of the kingdom of Christ. In our passage today, however, we are particularly to learn, Paul is emphasizing something specific. We learn that it is actually the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus, not Paul or any other apostle or Christian, who extends Christ's kingdom in the world. And he, the Holy Spirit, directs and hinders and opens hearts as he pleases. As is our tradition, let's stand as I read this primary passage for today. Would you mind standing up with me? And I'll read out loud Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. And they, at least Paul and Silas and Timothy and maybe others, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come, to, come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside, outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods 
who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. As I mentioned to you at the outset of today's service, the main point or main idea is in your bulletin on that right-hand inside flap. Uh, Just a repeat, though, and hopefully it's on the board behind me. The main point, main idea, I understand to be this this section of, of the book of Acts, is that the gospel message itself, and not only the content of the gospel, but the message, is a gift of God's grace. And we who know it ought to share it promiscuously, wide and far, trusting God with the results. The gospel message itself is a gift of God's grace, and we who know it ought to share it promiscuously, trusting God with the results. For those who'd like to take notes, the three points that I'll make today before we head into our time of uh, observing the Lord's Supper will be these. First, looking especially at verses 6 and 7 and 8 and seeing the spiritual prohibition there. Then, looking at verses 9 to 13, we'll see both the spiritual directive and the practical methods that are on display for us. And then third and finally, we'll see the spiritual illumination in verses 14 and 15 that God brings about in the heart of Lydia. Well, let's start off looking right back up there in verses 6, 7, and 8 and think about for a a little while this spiritual prohibition that we see. The first thing we want to recognize is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the main character of our passage today. The Holy Spirit was the primary sender of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey from the church in Antioch. So it's not surprising that we see him playing a major role here too at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. There are supporting actors, of course, in our passage today, Paul, his traveling party, and Luke himself seems to join the group in verse 10. If you see it there in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Luke consistently before that talked about they and them. But after 16, verse 10, or including 16, verse 10, Luke starts to use words like we and us. And we also meet some other interesting characters. A lady named Lydia, we meet in verse 14, and a handful of unidentified women along with her, as well as Lydia's household. Uh, All of these are sort of background and supporting characters. But the Holy Spirit is the most important and main character in our passage. This second missionary trip is really the extension of the first. And so, as I said, the Holy Spirit initiated the whole thing. During this second journey, the Holy Spirit forbade, according to the English Standard or King James, or prevented NET or kept the NIV, Paul and his companions from speaking the word in Asia. That's verse 6. The Holy Spirit also did not allow or permit or suffer them to go into Bithynia. Depending on your translation, I'm just trying to pull the different words that are there. Instead, the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul in a vision that the Macedonians were the people to whom he wanted Paul and his friends to preach the gospel. And when they did speak to some of the Macedonians in the city of Philippi, the Holy Spirit opened the heart of at least one of these hearers such that she believed the gospel. So, Lord willing, we'll consider all of these actions of the Holy Spirit that we see in our passage today. But under this first point, I'd like us to focus on the Spirit's prohibitions. Two times in this brief passage, the Holy Spirit prohibited 
or stopped or prevented the missionary party from preaching the gospel in one place in order to direct their efforts elsewhere. And there's so much we might delve into to consider these prohibitions. I'm going to keep our focus narrow, though, particularly on, first, the continued reign and work of Christ in the world through the Holy Spirit, the reality that this is Jesus at work through his Spirit. And then secondly, on the Holy Spirit's prerogative, his right to direct the gospel where he sees fit. So first, let's consider this maybe confusing at times, but this clear affirmation that the Holy Spirit is indeed Christ working in the world. The Holy Spirit, in verse 6, is the Spirit of God and is the Spirit of Christ that we see there in verse 7. So the Holy Spirit is how he's mentioned in verse 6, and in verse 7, it's the Spirit of, he is the Spirit of Jesus. The Scripture presents us with several assertions about God that we have to sort of collect and keep in our minds if we're to understand rightly both who and what God is. I think that often people can get twisted into knots if they try to press the doctrine of the Trinity too deeply into a philosophical container. But I think there are at least two categories, philosophical categories, that are helpful for us today. These historically, are uh, Christians have, have defined uh, the doctrine of God, who is God and what is God, in, in exactly those kind of categorical terms. That God is one what and three whose. That God is one being or thing or essence. And that God is three in person or in subsistences. Now, just to use some technical words to remind you guys uh, that Christians have been thinking deeply about these things for a very long time. So the Bible teaches us that there is one God who has revealed himself as Father, as Son, and as Spirit. The Holy Spirit then is the third person of the Trinity. And he possesses all the same attributes as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is specifically called the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead is Spirit. The Father is Spirit, and the Son is Spirit. Uh, there's, there's this reality that the triune God in totality is a Spirit and does not have a body like we do, as the Catechism goes that we've taught our two sons. He, God, is Father, Son, and Spirit, and is essentially non-corporeal, does not have a physical being. Now, of course, God the Son did take on a body like ours when he took on human form, according to Scripture. When God the Son became Jesus of Nazareth in the, in the womb of a virgin. But the essence of the triune God did not change in the least when that happened. Now, as I said before, philosophers can tie themselves into knots over the Trinity, but we don't have to. So if you feel like your mind is going numb, even by the things I've mentioned so far, stay with me. We simply need to keep in our minds that God is one what and three who's. These three are distinct. The Father is not the Spirit or the Son. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet these three are never separate. We cannot speak of one without relationship to the others. We don't have to understand the mechanics. I don't think anyone is really fully capable of understanding the mechanics. We just need to remember that God is the one who has revealed his own character, his own nature, and his own personhood to us. And we need to take his word because he knows himself better than we ever will. So that said, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the triune God. He is the spirit of both the Father and the Son. In fact, the Bible uses interchangeably these various terms to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus in our passage here, the Spirit of Christ, 
Uh, Romans chapter 8 uh, is an example of this, uh, as I said, our, our text here today. And also Acts chapter 6 is another example of this. So the Holy Spirit in verse 6 of our passage here today is the same as the Spirit of Jesus in Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 7. And so when Luke uses this designation, Spirit of Jesus, as distinct from the Holy Spirit in the previous verse, I think what Luke is intending there is not to say this is a different spirit, but rather to remind us that it is actually Jesus, God the Son, who is at work still in the world by the power of his Spirit. It is he himself who is working and directing and building up his church, just as he said he would do. And he's doing it by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus' on working, uh, ongoing work in the world. Now, the second feature of this that we want to think about is that the Holy Spirit, because he is God's Spirit, because he is the Spirit of Jesus, he has the right or the prerogative to send the gospel to one place and not to another. And now it's clear that Christ intended his disciples, his followers, to bear witness to the gospel as far out into the world as possible. This is clear from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. This is Christ's commission to his people. Go as far as you may, preaching the gospel to all who will hear. However, that does not mean that every nation or state or town or person would immediately or always have a gospel witness. As a matter of fact, many nations in in history have come and gone with no gospel witness at all. It's just a matter of historical fact. And many people even today live their whole lives without ever hearing the gospel. Once again, these are facts. Did you know that nearly half of the world's population today is categorized as unreached? This means that the number of professing Christians among their people group is less than 5%. So less than 5 out of every 100 people and this particular people group would profess to be Christians in half of the world's population. Just over a quarter of the world's population falls into an even worse category. So half of that half. The Joshua Project calls these frontier peoples. And these are people groups with less than 0.1%. Not one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand, 0.1% calling themselves Christians. And these statistics are what they are after 200 plus years of the modern evangelical missionary movement. So during the age of exploration in the 1400s to 1600s, developed nations brought their religions along with them to all the places they explored to try to conquer the unknown world. But around the turn of the 19th century, Western Christians in Europe and in America began to organize their efforts, not as nation builders going out to try to make others, you know, uh, American or British necessarily, but rather as genuine Christian missionaries. Uh, So some of these are William Carey. Uh, He went to India. Adoniram Judson went to Burma. And later, David Livingston went to Africa. These are only a few of the more famous names But there are thousands of Christian men and women who were pioneers of the modern evangelical missionary movement. And missionary money and personnel have both grown, have both grown exponentially over the last 200 years. And yet 
there remains today in our world a great number of sinners who have no gospel witness. Now, brothers and sisters, this reality may be a wake-up call for some of us here today. What are you doing for the sake of the Great Commission? Are you making disciples among the people that you know, at least the ones that you can reach? Are you praying for the conversion of sinners in Diana, in Longview, in Or City, in Gilmer, in China or India or Pakistan? Are you contributing out of the surplus of your finances to the preservation and the extension of the teaching ministry of this local church or other local churches? Are you giving your support to help the missionary partnerships that we have existing with our congregation here? Or maybe God would have one or two of us in the room consider taking up everything, selling it, going across the world to a whole different country with a different language and a different culture to invest ourselves in gospel ministry. If you'd like to consider that, I'd be happy to consider that with you. Think about what your qualifications are for that and what your options are. Just come talk to me if that's something you'd like to do. But friends, there's another side of this coin. Yes, Jesus Christ has commissioned every Christian to be a disciple-making disciple, and some Christians will cross geographical and even language barriers to make disciples, but God the Holy Spirit has the right to make the gospel witness more or less accessible at any given place or time. It is a fact that the gospel has been both visible and veiled at various places and times in history. And God is sovereign over such ebbs and flows. Right here in our passage is evidence of that reality. Think about it with me and follow along. The Holy Spirit forbade, prevented, kept Paul and his companions from speaking the word, the gospel, in Asia. The Holy Spirit also did not allow or permit or suffer them to go into Bithynia. Luke is flat out telling us that the missionary team was not able, because of some physical hindrance or maybe some special revelation from the Holy Spirit, that they were not able to preach the gospel to lost sinners. They could not travel north or east in their efforts to preach the word. And listen, there was no other missionary effort. Paul and Silas had gone to go be missionaries, uh, and they were trying to head north and east, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. Barnabas took John Mark, and they were headed southwest. When the Holy Spirit said, no, Paul, you're not going north and east, no one else was going northeast. There are many good applications, I think, here. Stuff for us to consider. But I think we would all do well to hear and to see this morning the warning not to presume upon the grace of God. We praise God that we've had such a gospel witness near us for so long, but it is not something that we can or should expect. God does not owe the message of his grace and mercy to any sinner if we are hearers of this fantastic news today, then we ought to praise and thank God for God's Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives and in the circumstances of our lives. We should praise and thank God for his grace in sending Jesus. And we should thank God for his grace in sending us the message about Jesus so that we would know. Point number two, a spiritual directive and practical method. Uh, in the middle of our our passage, this middle section, there is the coming together of God's sovereignty and human efforts in evangelism. Verses 9 to 13 is where we're looking now. 
And we read that the Holy Spirit did direct Paul's missionary efforts, not just telling him where he could not go, but directing Paul where he should go. And we also read that Paul and his crew applied practical methods. Let's think about the spiritual directive. Let's think about the practical methods and let's think about how we can and apply this to our own lives. So first, the spiritual directive. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, gave the Apostle Paul a vision of a Macedonian man who was pleading for help. We see that in verse 9. And Luke tells us that Paul and the rest concluded or gathered that God himself, not merely this uh, supposed Macedonian man, that God himself had called or summoned them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. The phrasing of verse 10 indicates that Paul and his companions thought of this vision as a part of, as a sort of a positive answer to the roadblocks they'd been getting before. Uh, so God's spirit so far had said no to Asia and to Bithynia. So the inevitable, inevitable question for the missionaries was, all right, so which direction? It seems like this is the positive answer. Macedonia, that's where you're going. Friends, sometimes I hear Christians today talk about evangelism just like this. They talk in terms of waiting for spiritual appointments or divine encounters as though God is going to somehow give us a a vision from heaven about who it is we're supposed to share the gospel with. Now, there are certainly examples of supernatural intervention throughout the book of Acts, but this is not the norm. Even for the book of Acts, it's not the norm. And it's definitely not the way the Bible instructs Christians to think about evangelism. The Bible teaches us, everyday Christians, to think about evangelism as a necessary combination of righteous living and gospel proclaiming. Now, righteous living, I understand, is the necessary backdrop of gospel proclamation. In other words, if we don't practice what we preach, then we're not a credible witness for Christ. People won't believe us. Repeatedly, the New Testament commands Christians to be self-controlled, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to be zealous for good works. All of this is to live righteous lives. Uh, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, elsewhere. So brothers and sisters, we must war against sin. We must pursue holiness and we must work hard to align our understanding of such things, what sin and holiness are, with what the Bible says they are. We must do this for the sake of our own joy. Our joy will increase as we try to live holier lives. We should do this out of love and gratitude for our Savior. If we genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ, we will obey his commands. And we should do this for the credibility of our Christian witness. If we live more faithful lives to Christ, we will be more believable witnesses for him in the world. And then, brothers and sisters, we must open our mouths and tell others the good and bad news of the gospel. This is our spirit-inspired directive every day, all day. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God has reconciled sinners to himself through Christ. And God has entrusted the message of reconciliation to the very ones who have been reconciled. Therefore, the scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So you and I do not need a supernatural vision, nor should we wait for some emotional sense that God really wants me to talk to this person. In his providence, God has put you right next to sinners every day who need to see what it looks like to be an actual Christian, a believing Christian a spiritually alive Christian, the kind of Christian who does not go to hell in the end. They need to see what it looks like to be a real Christian. And God has put you there not merely to live faithfully, but also to speak truthfully and lovingly. 
to tell the truth about sin and judgment, to speak about guilt and repentance, to tell others about salvation and about the only Savior who offers it. Now, this practical method we see here, so moving from the spiritual directive now to the practical method, I think Paul and his crew give us another great example of practical evangelistic methodology right here in our passage. It's already been Paul's method of operation to start in any town by first heading to the synagogue on the Sabbath to talk with fellow Jews who are already interested in the Old Testament scriptures. That's where he's usually begun. Now, Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and it may not have had much of a Jewish population. I think that's probably why Paul and his fellow Christian missionaries went outside the gate in verse 13, even as far as the river to find a group of women who had come together for prayer on the Sabbath. I think this indicates that there, there wasn't uh, maybe hardly any Jews in the town, maybe any Jewish men. If there were Jewish men, then they would have built and maintained a synagogue. Whatever the demographic makeup, though, of Macedonia, we know that it was mostly Gentile. And that's why Paul's traveling there anyway, is because he wanted to preach the gospel to Gentiles so that he might fulfill the commission that Jesus gave him. And in this passage, we can observe Paul's consistent and practical methods for evangelism. Think about it with me. Paul, in verse 12, he went to a leading city where he wanted to evangelize. He stood, he set up shop there for a while. Luke says in verse 12, we remained in this city some days. He hung around for a while. Paul targeted those people with whom he had the most common ground in other towns, as I said, that were the, that was the Jewish men in the synagogues. But in Philippi, the ones with whom he shared the most common ground were women who had come together in a place of prayer on the Sabbath, verse 13. And finally, Paul and his Christian brothers, they preached or spoke the gospel to them. Let's take each one of these in turn and think about how we might apply these practical methods in our own lives. So first, Paul went where the people were and where other people would be. So in your situation, unless you're planning uh, to plant a church somewhere or a missionary strategy, then God has already put a targeted population right around you. God has placed people around you who you often run into, people you often interact with. And so where is that for you? Where do you often run into new people? Where do you often interact with people that you're building relationship with again and again and again? Well, for most of us, the main place that we interact with others is on our job. So how are you thinking about your time at work as an opportunity for evangelism. There's no mistake that God has put you there. Now, for some of us, the main places we run into non-Christians is in the context of community activities. So how are you living as a Christian witness in your community, looking for ways to point other people to Jesus? All of us interact with non-Christians somewhere. We visit the mechanic. We talk briefly with the checker at the grocery store or the gas station. Maybe some of us do cardio and lift weights beside sinners all the time. We connect with others over hobbies. And some of us live with non-Christians right here in our home. Think about it in our own homes, especially parents. Non-Christians live with us. Our children are not yet believers until they can understand the gospel and believe, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. What a great opportunity God has given us to teach them the gospel and to show them what Christianity really looks like. God help us to be witnesses to those who are right nearby. The second thing we see Paul exemplify here is that he hung around long enough to know where he could find the people with whom he had the most common ground. So he stuck around for a little bit, 
observing this town. As I said, in the previous towns, he would just go to the synagogue. He knew that's where he had common ground with folks. In this town, there wasn't one of those, or it doesn't seem to be. So he's hanging around for a little while and trying to find, all right, where, where are the people that I'm going to find at least some initial connection? This is, this is his method of operation. And so he does. He finds people who are these Gentiles who are at least familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, elsewhere in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is one who's called a God-fearer, a Gentile, who's, who's like this. Lydia, in our passage in verse 14, is a worshiper of God. So these are the folks who, who already have an interest in the Old Testament. They're, they're already having, having some kind of biblical worldview that Paul can begin to share the gospel with them. But for all of us, we have a great deal in common with people who are very common in East Texas who are nominal Christians. They say that they're Christians. They at least know enough about the Bible to know that they should obey God. They should love Jesus. They should think well of the local church. But if you or I will just ask them a few questions, we will often find that they have no real intentions of of obeying God when his ethics disagree with their own. They don't actually love the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. They love a Jesus of their own imaginations. And they haven't been to a Sunday church gathering in years wherever they say they're keeping their membership, whatever that means. Brothers and sisters, focus your evangelistic efforts right there. What a model of this was Kathy Ford. She wasn't the most articulate person, and she hated talking in front of people. But she loved her sisters and her mom, and she knew that the Scripture could do spiritual work in them that she never could. So she organized a weekly Bible study where she'd sit down with her sisters and her mom. This happened off and on over the course of years. Sometimes one of her sisters would be on speakerphone uh, on the table at the meeting. But they'd read a portion of the Bible, they'd talk about it, and then they'd pray together. And over the course of time, the Word and the Holy Spirit did the work. Praise God for the fine example that Kathy is to many of us. Brothers and sisters, you might one day be a Christian apologist who debates atheists or Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses. But don't wait to be loaded for bear before you go hunting squirrel. Look for the folks right nearby. You don't have to be a Christian apologist to be a gospel witness. Just talk to the people you already know about the Jesus you love and serve. Ask them questions about what they really believe and talk with, talk with them about what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. Do they have any? If so, how might you encourage them to exhibit more? If they don't have any spiritual fruit, then have an honest and loving conversation with them about what that might mean about their real spiritual estate. Maybe they aren't actually Christian. The third practical method we see on display here is that Paul and his friends, they actually preached or spoke the gospel. They didn't just live righteous lives and then talk about the weather or baseball or politics. No, at some point or another, they laid out the gospel and they called for repentance and faith. This leads me into my third point for the sermon. But right here, I just want to say, I think this is probably the, the aspect of evangelism that catches most of us. We, we are happy to talk about Jesus. We're happy to talk about the local church. We're happy to talk about Christianity but we're hesitant to lay that either-or decision in the laps of our friends. Either you're going to follow Jesus from here on out, or you're not going to follow Jesus. Now, we don't have to be jerks when we do that. We don't have to sever our friendship if they say no. 
But brothers and sisters, we have to get to the point in the conversation where we actually lay that in the laps of those we love. That either you are following Christ or you are rejecting him. Number three in the sermon today, spiritual illumination. Looking last now at these last couple of verses. Verses 14 and 15. As always happens on Sunday mornings, we are not able to squeeze every drop of goodness from the passage. Today, as a couple of Sundays ago, I'm probably going to disappoint those of us who want to get into the polity issues that arise from the events in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council or here with the baptism of Lydia and her household. I assure you that no one in the room would be happier to talk about polity and the church ordinances or sacraments than me. But I don't think that's the main idea here. And I think most of us will benefit more from considering how Lydia was converted. I think that's Luke's point in including such verses in this passage. Look with me at verse 14. I want you to see it for yourself. Luke says, One who heard us, that is Paul and his companions preaching the gospel, was a woman named Lydia from from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, which probably means she was wealthy, who was a worshiper of God. Once again, this is someone who was a Gentile, who as much as Gentiles were allowed, lived under the Mosaic covenant. So this is the kind of person Lydia is. She's probably a wealthy lady. She's on the Sabbath, gathered for a time of prayer with some of her friends. Uh, she's a Gentile, so she's doing this contra her what's socially acceptable, you know, uh, socioeconomic and, and cultural status. Uh, she's, she's there, uh, and she is, she is doing what she understands to be right under the Mosaic covenantal instructions. Now, the next phrase in verse 14 is similar in all of the translations, whatever you've got in front of you there. In the ESV, it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Uh, The NASB and others, the Lord opened her heart to respond. Uh, The King James says it uh, uh, poetically, her heart the Lord opened and she attended unto the things which were spoken. What I'd like to do is in the remaining portion of the sermon time today is consider what this phrase means at the end of verse 14 by grabbing hold of two Greek words. Uh, I don't typically just point out Greek words. I'm not a Greek scholar. I dabble a little bit, uh, but I think it's helpful for us to think about these two ideas. And so we'll just use the the words that are underneath the text there to get to them. The Greek words, the first one is dianoigo. And this is what the Lord did to Lydia's heart while Paul spoke in verse 14. What did God do? That's what that word is getting at. Luke used the same word three times in the last chapter of his gospel. And there he said that the disciples eyes were opened to be able to recognize Jesus. That's Luke 24, 31. The same word again is used. The scriptures were opened to the disciples when Jesus explained them, Luke 24, 32. And the disciples' minds were opened to be able to understand the scriptures, Luke 24, 45. In each one of these cases, it was the Lord who was doing the opening in Luke 24, just as he's doing here in Acts 16. In Luke 24, it was the eyes of the disciples, the scriptures, and the minds of the disciples being opened with the same word that's being used there. So when Luke says here, in our passage, the Lord opened her heart, he means that the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, made Lydia receptive to the message or the words that Paul was saying. For those of us who are parents, it's like when we yell at our kids. I mean, when we tell them compellingly, open your ears. Right? We don't think that there's something stopping uh, information from getting in their ear holes. We think they're not listening, and we want them to listen. We want them to really listen. So while hearing the gospel message, 
Lydia, it seems, really started to listen. She became capable of understanding and interested in the substance of the words that were spoken. And this happened because, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. The second word that I want to focus on is prosecco, and it's also there in verse verse 14. And this is what Lydia did. So the Lord opened her heart. Well, what did Lydia do? Luke says in, in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention or to respond or to attend to, depending on your translation, the words which Paul was speaking. The Lord made it happen. He opened her heart, her ears, her mind, and Lydia paid attention. She responded. She attended to what she was hearing. The word is used in the New Testament for ideas of caution. Watch out. Beware. The, words, uh, the word is also used for devotion. Devote yourself. Or even for care. Pay careful attention to. The idea, I think, is that Lydia began to hear what Paul was saying with a heart that believed the words were true. And it was this sort of response that resulted in Lydia being baptized and judged or considered by Paul and his band of Christian missionaries as faithful to the Lord or a believer in the Lord. The clear meaning of the text here is that Lydia was converted. She became a Christian. That's what Luke is telling us. Not merely a God-fearer or worshiper of God, but with her ears, she'd heard the words of the gospel, and now, by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, she believed. Friends, not every passage in the New Testament is as clear as this one on the details of what happens that moment when a sinner is transferred from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. But any good Bible student knows that we're supposed to let the clearer passages of Scripture to impact or influence our understanding of the less clear passages. We don't take our speculations from elsewhere and jam them on top of a clear passage. Rather, what we do is we aim to see all of Scripture in perfect harmony, drawing together various passages that clearly speak to something we're trying to understand. As I said, I think Acts 16 is clear about what happened and why. What did God do? He opened Lydia's heart. What did Lydia do? She believed. Now, there's no doubt that the message of the gospel is essential for anyone to be converted. Lydia had to hear the gospel in order for belief to result. The Bible's clear about this. Romans chapter 10, for example, says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So the implication is there has to be someone to preach the gospel. There has to be the gospel coming to the ears of the unbeliever for them to hear the good news, to understand the good news, and then to believe the good news and call upon the Lord. But why do some people call on the name of the Lord, repent and believe, while others hear the gospel and either neglect or reject it? Well, back in the first few verses of our passage this morning, we were reminded that God does not owe the message of his grace and mercy to any sinner. Not only does he not owe grace and mercy to any sinner, he doesn't owe that message to any sinner. The Holy Spirit was and is fully within his right to steer Paul's missionary team away from Asia and Bithynia and toward Macedonia. 
The gospel is a message about God's grace. And the very act of hearing the gospel is also a gift of God, a gracious gift of God. Now, here in the last couple of verses of our passage, we're reminded that God is the only one who can change the sinner's heart. We can preach, we can teach, we can plead, we can pray, and we should certainly do all of those things. But only God can bring about spiritual life to the spiritually dead heart. The Bible, again, is crystal clear on this point. I'll just cite three passages briefly. The natural person, the Bible says, does not accept the things of of the Spirit of God for they are folly or foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And again, the word of the cross or the word about the cross, the gospel, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are lost. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And again, the God or the ruler of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ. That the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in some sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. But if this is true, you might ask me, well then how in the world does anybody believe the gospel? And that's the right question. It is not surprising in the least that a sinner hears the gospel and rejects it. That's not surprising. What is surprising is that a sinner would hear the gospel and all of a sudden believe and cling to the message that he or she once thought of as foolishness. But that is the power of the Spirit of God at work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, to pull back to 2 Corinthians 4, for example, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But the scripture goes on to say, God who said, let light shine out of darkness at creation, shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is as though the gospel is foolishness and ugly and undesirable to the sinner who hears it until God turns the lights on. And then there's beauty in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they love the Savior that they once hated. This is what happened to Lydia. And this is what happens to every sinner who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It is not something, brothers and sisters, that we can do. Only God can do it. But we can play our part. The part that God has given us to play. So we pray. We preach. We tell. We implore those that we love And know to hear, to really hear the good news that Jesus is the one that God sent to live and to die for sinners. We describe and explain the contents of the gospel. God is creator. Man is guilty sinner. Christ is gracious savior. And then we call for a response. You must repent. Turn from your sin. You must repent believe, sincerely embrace Jesus Christ for who he is. And then we wait. We wait for God to do that work that only he can do. And we watch for signs of spiritual life, for fruit, for evidence. Friends, today we've studied a passage that highlights God's gracious grace. We've been reminded that the Christ or Messiah that God sent to save guilty sinners was not sent to do a work that was owed to any of us. Rather, the work of Christ on the cross and the Spirit's application of that work are both acts of God's 
sovereign grace. So too, the message about Christ's work is carried by Christian witnesses. But the arrival of that message to any sinner's ear is an act of God's sovereign grace just as well. Therefore, we who know the gospel ought to share it promiscuously, freely, without distinction or discrimination, even as we trust God with the results. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.